Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting On the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD archives and pull down a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting On the Mind of Christ. There are many views of the world and what's happening in it. We all have or should have our own personal worldviews. Is there a single Christian worldview? What is the Catholic worldview? What can we, the Catholic faithful, do to enhance our Catholic worldview? Christ the King Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan has started an adult education series to help the parishioners develop a proper Catholic worldview. These educational sessions are usually held in the parish center between the two Sunday morning masses. This limits the time to just over an hour. Speakers have been both local experts and invited guests brought in to speak on a worldview topic. The Catholic Worldview Series is an outgrowth of a meeting held by Professor Barbara Morgan, the Director of Religious Education at the parish and the founder and first chair of the University of Steubenville Catechesis Department. She's also an internationally published author and teacher. The men and women at that roundtable meeting form the speaker core of the series. Our regular listeners will know most of their names. I will be making a concerted effort to edit and get to air these talks before the vital U.S. elections in November. A few have already been heard on this program. Our speaker today is Paco Gavrilides. He teaches homiletics at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. Aside from our Lord, his passion is evangelization. He's traveled the world actively practicing it since the late 60s. We'll hear from Paco right after this break. Stay with us. You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer. I've known our speaker on this edition since the summer of 1971. He had a full head of hair then, and mine was years away from being gray. At that time, he was the most intense guy I had ever met. It was rumored that he hardly slept. He lived to evangelize. He did a lot working with the dorm students at the University of Michigan. He graduated from that and went on to work in Mexico and South America. He attended seminary in Mexico. He also spent some years in Europe helping develop Christian communities. All the while, he was honing his evangelism skills. While working in the Middle East, he barely escaped with his life when the shooting started. As in a James Bond flick, he and a companion jumped into a boat and escaped. 
But Paco's talk today isn't about these adventures as exciting as they were. By way of contrast, it's more like living a Christian life manual. Paco now lives a suburban life with his wife Inez and three children. He commutes to a seminary office in Detroit. Gone are the blue jeans and sandals. His attire now is shirt, tie, jacket, slacks, and loafers. His life isn't much like his globe-trotting community formation days. But our Lord and evangelism are still his passions. He's actively involved in men's ministry and both English and Spanish conference speaking. He still travels, but not as much, and is a popular conference speaker. He leads an early morning men's group that I'm a member of. He still devours scripture. His very well-worn Bible attests to that. Here is Paco Gavrilides and You Shall Renew the Face of the Earth. I chose the title You Shall Renew the Face of the Earth because even in the title itself, we have an understanding of what should be our mentality as Catholic Christians as we live in this world right now. What I hope to do in this presentation is I want to cover three areas. The first I wanted to do is talk a little bit about some comments on biblical distinctions between the word world. The second is to discuss how, with our Catholic worldview, we're to relate to the world. And third, if we ever get to it, is I'd like to discuss the importance of Catholic witness through what John Paul II writes about in his apostolic exhortation, Christis Fidelis Laici, the vocation and mission of the lay faithful in the world. He calls it renewing the ecclesial fabric, which means renewing the church herself. And if we can't get to that now, that really could be an entire talk in itself. You know, it's so clear for all of us here that the mandate of the church is that of bringing the light of Christ to all creation, to bring the gospel to every creature. Now, this may sound very simple, but it's very important to get. And that is, there's two clear ways that we know how to do this from the scriptures. The first one, I'm going to read a couple of texts and make some comments on, and then I'll go to the next one. This passage comes from Philippians 2, 14 and 15, and Matthew 5, 14 to 16. I think I'll start with Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The second passage says this, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Now let's just look at those two passages a moment. In the Philippians passage, Philippians 2, what Paul is really trying to say to us is, the way that we live in this world is supposed to express a tremendous filial trust in God, a joy in living, knowing that we're sons and daughters of the Father, that we don't complain about life, but we rejoice in the gift of life itself. And in so doing, 
there is a witness within the society to God himself. In other words, our life of joy and hope and confidence doesn't become a reproach to Christ, but rather it is a sign that we're living in the victory even now. And this is a very important truth of how we are to witness in the world. We're to shine, not just to be here, but to shine. Like when there's a light, you see it. It attracts you. It draws you. So this is the power of the witness. Then in the second text, it says, You are the light of the world, a city on a hill, cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel. What Jesus is trying to say to us is some very important truths that I think we're supposed to become more and more intent about living out. And that is, we as Christians are to be living our life seriously and in an intentional manner so that we don't live our Christian life only because it's right. It's the right way to live. Or we don't live our Christian life only because it's a blessing to us, which it is, right? Wouldn't you agree? It's a blessing to live the Christian life. We experience God's blessing. But also because it's the integral part of mission itself. We live as lights of the world, conscious of the fact that we are in mission. In a very real way, Our lives as Christians are meant to be on display before the secular society that surrounds us. We're supposed to be on display that people can look at it. They can wonder about it. They can be curious because of the manner in which we are living, the way we are living. Through the observance of our lives, now this is a very awesome truth, a certain revelation of God can be given to unbelievers, and through it, they can more easily be brought to faith. They should observe us in the way that we put on the wisdom of God and live our lives wisely, responsibly. They should be able to observe the quality of loving relationships that we have with one another. They should be able to be impressed by seeing the power of God at work in the believing community. They should be touched by the goodness that's being imparted as we share our lives in the way that we relate to others with the goodness that is his own goodness to others. So it's imperative that we maintain consciousness of this call to witness that is so essential in drawing others to Christ and to his church. Now, I found a very, I think, beautiful prayer that's really apropos that I wanted to read to you. It's called Radiating Christ. It's by Blessed Cardinal John Newman. And this is what it says. Dear Jesus, help me to spread your fragrance wherever I go. Flood my soul with your spirit and life. Penetrate and possess my whole being so utterly that my life may only be a radiance of yours. Shine through me and be so in me that every soul I come in contact with may feel your presence in my soul. 
Let them look up and see no longer me, but only Jesus. Stay with me, and then I shall begin to shine as you shine. So to shine as to be a light to others. The light, O Jesus, will be all from you. None of it will be mine. It will be you shining on others through me. Let me thus praise you the way you love best, by shining on those around me. Let me preach you without preaching, not by words, but by my example, by the catching force of the sympathetic influence of what I do, the evident fullness of the love my heart bears to you. Amen. Now, isn't this a beautiful prayer? Would you like a copy? I'll, I'll see that we make a copy of this. I think we should pray this as a community. This is a beautiful prayer. Now, the second way, of course, that we all know is to go out and spread the gospel everywhere to make disciples of all nations. Here's the famous Great Commission that we've heard many, many times. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, says Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. That's the mandate. In this text alone, we can clearly see the work of the church to bring people into Christ and into his body, his church, to evangelize, to baptize, to catechize, to make disciples and incorporate into Christ's body is the mission of the church Until the close of the age. So we've got our marching orders, right? We're not going to get new orders. This is it. Now, please bear in mind that the missionary mandate of Jesus doesn't allow for any of us to retire from our call as church. There's no retirement in this plan of God. There's no moment when we can justifiably say to ourselves and to others, I've been there and I've done that. Can't say that. The job is done when the Lord calls us home to himself. And then he will say, come, O beloved of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Boy, I'm waiting to hear those words. You know, I used to work in a parish many years ago in Detroit, in the Archdiocese of Detroit, St. Thecla. And I did many things, but one of the things that I did was I had a Bible study for elderly women, probably about my age and up, I don't know. (laughs) And at this Bible study, we would talk about different things. But one day, I can't remember what actually spurred me to say this, but I think it was the Holy Spirit because of the results. I began to say that it was really sad that way too many elderly people had been simply opting out of serving and caring for their families or the parish, and now they're going around in buses and going to places where they can play poker and gamble or go to places and relax. And there really are women that do this, you know. 
I suppose men do too, but I just know that I, nothing personal here, nothing. What I want to say is they basically, instead of seeing themselves connected to the life of the people of God, the mission of the church, they were just kind of lollygagging and doing all these things. Well, after I gave kind of a semi-impassioned commentary on this, three weeks later, the pastor and the associate said, what did you do? And I said, well, why? why? She says, all of a sudden, I've got all these ladies volunteering for all kinds of services in the parish. I've never seen this. And what they did is they reconnected to being a part of the life and the work of the church. They decided to continue to be the delights of the world and not just put their light under a bushel basket. So this is really a very important understanding. Now, just to say this, that I think we understand it is, the two expressions of the mission of the church, being a light, being a witness, and going forth to share the gospel, are intrinsically bound up one with the other. It's not one or the other. They go hand in hand. We as church are explicitly directed to participate in both of these dimensions of missionary activity. It's not a suggestion. It's a commission. Now, because we've been talking about the world, I was speaking to a brother after last week's talk, and one of the things he said was, I think we need more clarification on the word world in the scriptures. So I'm going to take a little time to talk about that. Some of you have heard this before. It's like basic but important. There really are three meanings of the word world in the scriptures. The first term, world, has more to do with the created universe. It has to do with the cosmos, all things that was put into existence. God spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood forth. It has to do with understanding God's beauty and order and the glory that there is in creation itself. And you've heard some of these expressions in the Psalms. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. That's Psalm 24.1. How about this one? You've heard this one. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Then some of us heard the psalm, bless the Lord, all ye works of the Lord, praise him, exalt him forever. There's a whole litany of praise. It's in the book of Daniel as well. And even in the mass, we hear the phrase, all creation rightly gives you praise. So all that God created is good. It's good. So should look at the world that God created as good. Let me tell you a quick story. Many, many years ago, I was with a group of brothers, and we went to North Carolina into the mountains. And in the mountains, you know, we were climbing all day to get to the top. And it was about, mm, I think, about 6, 6.30 in the evening. And as we got right to the pinnacle, we looked out, and we could see all the other mountain peaks. We could see the beauty of all the mountains. And the sun was shining. And it was so beautiful. It was so moving that all of us, when we got up there, almost spontaneously began to praise the Lord. C.S. Lewis, and I tried to ask the experts in this room to tell me which book it was, but they all failed me. (laughs) So I can't remember which book this was. But C.S. Lewis says there's a difference between an unbeliever who looks at creation and a believer. When an unbeliever looks at creation, he can admire its beauty. 
He can be kind of moved by its beauty. But when a believer really sees the beauty of the handiwork of God, it leads us into praise. It leads us to encounter with the Lord. Remember, the natural order of God's creation is like an icon that points us to something greater. The author of beauty, beauty itself, God himself. So the second meaning of the term world, which is something we're familiar with, is more specifically in reference to human beings, to mankind, all men and women who have been created in the image and the likeness of God. And this world God loves so dearly. Now, you can quote this passage from heart with me. John 3.16. Are you ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. The heart of the Father is that love that issues out not only to create the human person in his image and likeness, but to want to draw them into that intimacy and communion with himself and with one another. This is the world that we are to love. The third meaning of world, and this is the negative understanding that's in the scripture all over the place as well, is when we understand the world as that system of relationships, ideas, values, and patterns that are opposed to the kingdom of God. They're opposed to God's truth. The world, with this definition, doesn't know nor care about God. They don't want to be under God's will. They're not interested in God's purpose or his plan. This world, this set of relationships, this ordering of things outside of the will of God does not listen to nor honor God. And there are many, many places and cultures and environments where we know we are in the world and we are in that kind of context. In James chapter 4, it says he's exhorting and he's trying to get the Christians to pay attention to this truth. Unfaithful creatures, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Ooh, you can actually make yourself an enemy of God because the simple truth is this. You can't enter into communion, friendship, intimacy with the world and friendship, intimacy, and communion with God at the same time. You have to renounce one and enter the other. You have to put one aside and enter into the full life of God. So let's sum up the understanding of these three various senses of the world. All creation is a work of God, even though it's subject to its fertility right now. Fertility meaning it can't reach its final end, which is to be that fully transformed, glorious work that God intended for it from the very beginning. All human beings who have been created in his likeness are destined before the foundation of the world to be his children. That's the second understanding and to live for the praise of his glory. Now, many of these children who are destined to be sons and daughters of him are currently bound up in the world system, held captive 
by the kingdom of darkness under the tremendous influence of Satan and even in rebellion against God and without hope in the world. That's their state. That's the situation that they're in. Our calling as church is to go into that system, into that world, to witness and to preach the gospel, thereby setting the captives free. Are we getting it? Setting the captives free. I always find this passage from Paul very helpful in our being able to see how the truth of who we are, we're supposed to be living out of it. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.14, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us to triumph and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We can do this. One of the things that I believe when I receive revelation from God and the truths kind of settle in your spirit more deeply, what it should inspire in all of us is a renewed confidence and conviction that we can do this. We can do this. We can reach into the world system and we can draw people out so they can be connected to God himself through the church in Christ and their lives can be absolutely radically renewed. And he wants to use every single one of us. No exceptions. Isn't that wonderful? You have been called. And you not only have been called, you have been equipped. Amen? Okay. So, we are people who are sent into this broken, sick, and traumatized society to help rescue those who have been trapped in the kingdom of darkness. We will only be able to achieve this if we open wide our hearts to that same love that is in the heart of the Father out of which he sent his Son into the world and to redeem it. Now, I'd like to just share this with you, and I think you'll understand. You know, we have such a wonderful abundance of provisions here in our parish to grow in the Lord. We have wonderful teaching. We have all kinds of groups for prayer. We can have Eucharistic adoration and so on. And we can be so caught up in just being filled up with God, learning the truths of God, that the edge to go forth and to share this with others gets blunted because we've been eating our fuel so fully that we actually forget this dimension. And I think that we can almost settle in to the goodness and kind of the warmth of this kind of context in such a way that we've lost the heart of the Father for reaching all of those children who are destined for eternal life with Him, who are in the world right now and need to be rescued. Don't you think that's true? That can happen to us. And the busyness of our lives, the things that we're involved in, often seek to kind of divert us from this awareness. And what the Lord is asking for is a corrective. It's not so much a correction, it's a corrective. Now get your focus back so that you can be a people who are always operating out of the love that's in the Father's heart as Jesus was sent into the world that we are Christ in the world today. The obvious implication to all this is that we who are in Christ and members of the body living in the world cannot have a foxhole mentality. We can't hide in the bunker. 
or build a citadel until the war is over. We can't do that. Our love for all men and women consists precisely in fighting for their freedom through our prayer, witness, and evangelization. God's love for the world is to be our love for the world. If you fall in love with Jesus, who's fallen in love with Jesus? Then you're supposed to have the heart, the sentiments of Jesus, right? Well, Jesus 24-7 is thinking of every human being created in the image and likeness of God. And in the heart of God is that they enter into that perfect communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and everybody who's been caught up in that Trinitarian life. That's what we're about. That's what we have. Now, let's go a little farther in deepening our understanding on how we should be in the world, but not of it. Before I develop those ideas, I want to mention a couple of more temptations, three, that work on us in relating to the world around us and really trying to have an impact on us. Because I think they subtly work on us. And you may be able to add more temptations that I'm bringing forth. I'm just bringing three because that's a biblical number. (laughs) First one is this. That is believing or having the impression that we are impotent or too weak to face the powerful forces militating against our faith and the goodness and truth of God. That the media is telling us that things are falling apart, and indeed they are, but in such a way that you can subtly say, there's nothing we can do about it. We just have to hold out. We just have to sort of grit our teeth and go through this and see if somebody will save us. And that kind of mentality is very, very dangerous because it leads us to simply resign ourselves to the way things are to give up on it all, we would never be able to consider ourselves God's agents for change if we're living in that temptation. We just can't do it. We couldn't be useful to the master. Now, you know the devil wants that of you. He wants to get you there. So you're passive and you've sort of fallen back, overwhelmed. Second error. It's similar. It says this, well... Any of my efforts won't amount to that much anyway. It's too far gone. It won't get very far. It's kind of a subtle all or nothing. If I can't make the full impact, if we can't really change everything, well then, what's the worth? And sometimes we don't realize that's working on us. Now, there's a very serious flaw in that way of thinking. And that is, we forget that every single individual soul is precious to God. Every person is destined to eternal glory. And if we can be instruments of God to bring one more soul to the feet of Jesus Christ, we have done a wonderful work. We should keep that in mind always. Thirdly, it's a certain kind of posture that when we have the wrong kind of fear of being contaminated by the world, You know, love not the world, the things of the world. Well, we can be so concerned about the contamination. And of course, we always need to be vigilant and not give in to the ways and values and patterns of the world. But the proper approach to relating to those who are in the world and to that system is this. It's to put on an armor of light. It's to let our light shine and make no provisions for the flesh, knowing with wisdom and prudence 
how to be in that situation fruitfully and wisely. Let me tell you a story. On another occasion, I was on vacation. We were in Ireland. And in Ireland, we decided to go and listen to an Irish band. They were going to have all this folk music. And in this restaurant, over on one side, there were these seven men there. And as they were speaking, they were all speaking. I couldn't tell if they were speaking Spanish or French. Well, found out that they were Gallegos, and that's a certain dialect of Spanish. Well, I entered into a conversation. Some other brothers spoke in Spanish as well. And we began to evangelize, talk about Jesus, to talk about the church, the Catholic church. The all Spaniards had come into this port, and they wanted to relax for the evening. Well, we had some very powerful conversations, but they were also tipping a little bit, you know. They were drinking away. So at a certain point, it became clear that they weren't listening very well any longer. So I said, I think it's probably time to pull out. We've done all that we can here tonight. That's simple wisdom and prudence, right? You know, there's all kinds of other examples, but time will not permit. So let me go on. So the Christian who lives in the world should be very conscious of what kind of impact he or she can make simply because of their belonging to God. Whether we're referring to our participation in the culture, in work or entertainment, the Christian should be aware that the Spirit of God is in him, guiding, inspiring, and protecting him as he relates and works in that situation. Our presence, our wisdom, our character have great potential to affect and change situations for the better. Even when we don't see it for a long time, our presence in many situations of the world is affecting that situation. And I'll say more about that a little bit later. A Christian is one who seeks to live in accord with God's wisdom in areas of personal moral behavior, right? Now listen to this. Serious Christians are honest, responsible, faithful, and hardworking. They respect the proper order of relationships and live out their commitments with integrity. We don't steal, cheat on our spouses, lie to one another, or mistreat others. In our society today, just that kind of steady witness of righteous living has a real impact on people. It really does. People will take note of our righteousness. They will be inclined to trust us when they are looking for guidance or good judgment. They would prefer us to be their boss because of our steadiness, our honesty, our good judgment, and the soundness of our character. They know what their buddies are like. They want somebody who's steady when they really want a boss. Neighbors will want their houses to be watched by you because of the witness of the life that they see that you have in your own homes. They like you because neighbors like you are respectful of others. And we could go on. They admire your family. Now, this is a challenge for us, but this is the way it's supposed to be. Because of your children who have been taught how to show respect and consideration of adults, the elderly, and the sick. It reflects the understanding we have of the dignity of the human person. Now, in our society today, what we're losing is a sense of the basic dignity of the human person. To really show loving consideration and concern for the elderly, for the sick, and as children for adults is very impacting on people. It says something to them. So much of this way of life teaching I'm speaking about 
It's been given to us directly or indirectly through the teaching we have received in our Catholic Church. It's right there. Much of this is in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Now, when young Catholic couples come into courtship and do not engage in immoral behavior before marriage, when young married couples stay faithful to one another and desire to have and are generously open to receiving children as a gift from God, they are communicating an unspoken message of Christian truth to those around them in today's culture. All of this witness creates a real impression on people and prepares the climate for a more direct engagement with them about our values that are rooted in our faith in Jesus Christ, the living Lord. We shouldn't take any of this lightly. We are on display. The life that we live, we live in the open, publicly, that the world might see how God's grace has changed a people and made them different. If we are friendly and genuinely interested in those who are around us, if we are kind and sensitive to what is happening in their lives, and we are consciously praying for them that they might know Christ, doors will open and we can share with them the words of life. Now, you all know the passage Instead of it being John 3.15, it's 1 Peter 3.15. So it's easy for you to remember from now on. And it says the following. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence and keep your conscience clear. Our consciences are clear if we're walking in righteousness, we're walking in union with God. We're living in love as Christ has called us to live in love with him and with one another. Catholics in the workplace should be the kind of people who work hard and responsibly, cooperate with others on projects, help their colleagues, and promote good relationships, goodwill, and are praying in the Spirit all the time. Why? Because that's the way we're going to be able to be sensitive to what God is doing in those environments. Let me make this clear. God's presence is everywhere. The Spirit is at work in the world and hovering over these situations. We are agents of Christ in those situations to be used by God to impact them. In other words, we're in this relationship where we're working with God who is always working for the sake of others. We can't think about this in a compartmentalized way. Well, I do my evangelizing on Thursday nights from 7 to 8.45. No, you're always about the work of giving witness to Christ with our lives and ready to share the gospel. Barbara Morgan has been saying to us over and over again, we need to study. We need to study. We need to know the truth about the hot-button issues in our society today in the light of gospel teaching, the way the church has taught us to think about many of the issues that are around us today. I don't want to go into them today, but we need to be prepared. It's not enough just to know Jesus. Sometimes the first open door will be a discussion that has to do with same-sex marriage or a discussion that may have to do with some other issue, contraception. How about that one? And to be able to have prayed about that, 
learned about that, know the truth about that, is a wonderful way if we're patient and confident and unafraid that we put on the armor of Christ. Let's get into those discussions. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free, and the truth is what will be that which will touch other people because it enlightens the mind. It opens the eyes of others who have been in ignorance for so long. We have to speak it with clarity, with confidence, and with knowledge, depth of knowledge, that people can see their way through these issues and discover that behind it is the source of all truth, who's God himself, who's come to us, who has a face, who is Jesus, the Lord. Okay, now, some of us will emerge as leaders, and we should want to be leaders, Christian people. We should want to be leaders. In our leadership, we will be able to promote the common good, show respect and appreciation for those we are overseeing, and fairness with compassion and justice to those under our responsibility. Catholic Christians should be the kind of persons capable of promoting policies within their work environments that create better working conditions and more positive work relationships. That always can't be done, but whenever we can do it, we should do it. Why? That allows the environment to be an environment more conducive to interpersonal relationship, confidence, and trust, where then there's a kind of an openness where we can speak about things that matter with prudence and discretion. The cheerfulness that we show in the environment can keep the climate more optimistic and more receptive to good communication. Whether the situation is the family or in the neighborhood or at work, our presence, which is the presence of Christ, is making a difference, despite our ability to always immediately see how it is so. Now, I think it's helpful to bear in mind some truths about what's going on with our presence in the world in some of these situations that don't honor Christ, that don't follow his teaching. One way that we're in the world is we can promote the good. We can promote the common good in many situations. We can establish the right kind of values as much as possible that are coming from our beliefs and an understanding of the way God made the human person and human society. We can also block or lessen the activity of evil because of our presence in the situation. We can take a stand against bad decisions, people who want to lie or deceive to get ahead, all kinds of things. Our presence can diminish some of that. That's not a small matter. That's a very significant contribution we can make. And finally, in some situations, we're going to be able to actually transform that situation. We can transform that environment into something that really gives glory to God. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the impact of an influence on a broader level that Catholics have had on society and civilization. When we consider the impact of Catholics over the centuries on culture and art and science and education and medicine and government and law and many other areas, it's really, really awesome. We should be rightly proud of these contributions. Now, Some of you probably even read this book, but it's a wonderful book called How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization. It was written by Thomas E. Woods, Jr. I'm just going to make a couple of comments on it. I'm going to read a little bit. He says here, of course, he's promoting his book, but in this promotion, he makes the point. Today is the official release date for my new book. This has been out for a number of years, my wife tells me. 
that tells you that I haven't read this one yet. From the role of the monks to art and architecture, from the university to Western law, from science to charitable works, from international law to economics, the book delves into just how indebted we are as a civilization to the Catholic Church, whether we realize it or not. Then it goes on to really speak about tremendous contributions that Catholics have made in these areas in science and so on. But there's this one comment here that he says that I thought was worth bringing out to you. It says, I've tried to fill the book with little-known facts like these. To say that the church played a positive role in the development of science has now become absolute mainstream. Even if this new consensus has not yet managed to trickle down to the general public. In fact, Stanley Jackie, over the course of an extraordinary scholarly career, has developed a compelling argument that, in fact, it was important aspects of Christian worldview that accounted for why it was in the West that science enjoyed the success it did as a self-sustaining enterprise. Non-Christian cultures did not possess the same philosophical tools and, in fact, were burdened by conceptual frameworks that hindered the development of science. Let me just break it down and say this. For we who are Christians understand that God made us stewards of the creation that we're in, right? That this world is something he made it so that we could discover the secrets of the mysteries of this world and the awesome ways that God has put us together and created things. I've spoken to doctors when they discover certain aspects of the human body and how it functions are odd that have left them proclaiming that God is real. And there's been all kinds of scientists and so on who've been converted to the Lord through their own particular discipline. They've been converted to God, philosophers as well. But Catholic Christians look at the world as a gift from God. Something that we can enjoy, something that we can discover, something that we can work with to enhance our life as a human race. Especially as we become part of the new humanity through and in Jesus Christ. That makes sense? Okay, let me go on. I'm getting to the end. And I want to talk about something I think is helpful for us as Catholic Christians. And that's to understand a bit more about nature, human nature, and grace, and how they relate to one another. It's a very important truth here. It's important for us as we really think about interacting in the world. First of all, that we know that nature, the created order of things, and grace, God's supernatural life, are two separate and distinct realities, but we don't quite realize how they are related to each other. The truth is that nature and grace have their unity in Christ. How is that true? We know that all creation was created by God the Word, right? In John, it says in the first chapter, all things were created through him and for him. Everything that was made was made through him. And creation is good, even though creation at this time is weakened and in bondage due to the sin that's still in the world. We know that grace and truth were given to us in Jesus Christ as well. Now, through the Paschal mystery, through the death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ, there's been an inauguration of the new creation. It's already breaking through. We get this? It's already breaking through. This is a very important aspect of our understanding. So, the unity between grace, that is God's supernatural life and nature, is found in a couple of things. First of all, that the grace of God was given in Jesus to restore nature, to bring it back to its original harmony. The supernatural life of God does not just elevate nature, which is really good, but even more, it transforms it. What's happening in our lives through the Spirit? Now, all of us can rightfully give testimony to this. When you received Christ and life of grace, God began to bring back harmony and unity and peace in your mind, in your body, in your desires. Things began to be ordered, right? But you've become more than just having things ordered. You've been caught up into a quality of relationship with God that really allows you to live in a sonship even now with God that you didn't have before. Something more has happened. And it's very, very powerful. So grace doesn't just fortify our bodies, our human nature, as if it were given a powerful vitamin pill, injecting in us a better quality of life in the same old body. It's much more than that. The body also is glorified. The body also is transformed. Grace is transformative and allows us to be a new creation. And you've heard this passage many times by Paul. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We know that the total transformation of all things will not be fully realized until the final coming of the Lord. Yet it has already begun and able to manifest itself clearly in the lives of those who live in Christ. This passage is one of my final texts here from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is worth meditating on and sort of even measuring ourselves in light of it. It says, And we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This means that there's a dynamic action of God at work, making transformation more and more evident in our lives as we keep yielding to God and His truth and His love. What I want to say in conclusion is, what we're hearing here, all of our children need to understand and embrace this vision. The vision of Catholic life and action in the world. To impact it, to change it, to transform it. We want to send our children out into the world as those who can be life changers in the power of God. To change things that it gives glory to God, that things can be transformed. We have centuries where nations literally became disciples of the Lord. And that can happen again. Even in our time, even if we go through a winter for a while, we can still do this work. In these times, we parents must work hard at communicating this vision day in and day out. It's hard work. It involves 
persistence. It involves sacrifice and suffering and attentiveness to the task. Don't give it to anyone else. Don't expect anyone else to do it. You are called and equipped by grace and wisdom and truth to be able to give this vision, this understanding to your children and to your grandchildren. And nobody puts down the sword of the spirit until they're taken up into God with him. We're here to fight this good fight to the end for the glory of God. This is our call to renew the face of the earth. Let's say yes to it. Let's rejoice in it. And let's expect God, even in these days, to do wonderful things through his servants who say yes to his plan his power, and his way. Amen. God bless you. Over Sacred Heart Major Seminary is Paco Gavrilides. He spoke in one of the Christ the King Parish's Catholic Worldview Sessions. His title was, You Shall Renew the Face of the Earth. As the calendar closes in on the November elections in the U.S., we'll have more talks to develop our own Catholic worldview drawn from the Christ the King series and other sources. Stay with us now for several contributions from Vatican Radio. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. Our Holy Father has been visiting the Middle East, specifically Lebanon. There are a significant number of Christians there. As a matter of fact, the priests who celebrate Mass for us in our chapel are of the Maronite order and are from Lebanon. We have two reports from Vatican Radio on the Pope's trip. Here is Vatican Radio's Susie Hodges. The impact of Pope Benedict's three-day pastoral visit to Lebanon, during which he made a number of heartfelt appeals for peace in the troubled Middle East area, is continuing to make ripples across the region. Patriarch Ignace Joseph III Yunin is leader of the Syrian Catholic Church of the Antiochian tradition, whose patriarchal see is based in Lebanon. He talked to my colleague Tracy McClure, just ahead of the papal visit, about some of the key issues facing this church, which finds its roots in Syria, where people are currently witnessing one of the darkest chapters in this nation's history. Until uh, what uh, the West uh, likes to call the Arab Spring, Christians were living in Syria relatively in peace. They were respected as uh, a church like others because the regime uh, used to be uh, secular. Of course, we didn't have in uh, this region of the Middle East, except Lebanon, full citizenship as the other of the Muslim majority. However, we can say that after the massacre of 1915 in the uh, Turkish Empire, many Christians who left uh, Turkey, came to Syria, to Lebanon, to live uh, relatively in peace and to start a new life. Therefore, we are very, very much concerned about the uh, present situation, not only of Syriac Catholics, but of all Christians in Syria. We are really frightened that 
another exodus uh, like it, uh, the one we witnessed in Iraq will, uh, will be starting and it did start in Syria and this is for all Christian even for the Syrian people It's a really great loss. The bishops at the Synod for the Middle East uh, called for greater recognition in the Middle East of the contributions of Christians to society, their equal civil rights, uh, freedom of conscience, the importance of, of nurturing a sense of common citizenship. The Synod, however, ended not long before the Arab Spring erupted. How do you hope this shifting region will respond to this call of the bishops for greater uh, civil rights? We uphold uh, all uh, rights, uh, civil rights for all. In a democratic uh, country, we have to be uh, beside those who claim their rights of citizenship, uh, uh, the pluralism of uh, political uh, expression, and the uh, freedom of uh, religion and of conscience. Lebanon, its exception, we have uh, a civilized constitution where citizenship is uh, granted to all, whatever religion or race or uh, ethnic uh, they belong to. That was Patriarch Ignace Joseph III Yunan speaking to Tracy McClure. Dr. Mohamed Samak is a leading Lebanese Muslim scholar who is advisor to the Grand Mufti of Lebanon and secretary of the nation's Committee for Muslim-Christian Dialogue. He is also the author of more than 20 books on Arab affairs, interreligious dialogue and politics and religion and was one of the guests at the 2010 Synod of Bishops for the Middle East. He spoke to me about why he is a strong supporter of the need for conviviality between Christians and Muslims. Are you confident that this conviviality between Christians and Muslims in Lebanon can survive, you know, despite all the turmoil one sees going on in the Middle East region? Well, I don't say that it can survive. I say it should survive and it should play its role in bringing together plural societies into this concept of conviviality, because there is no other way to live together except by accepting and respecting differences, differences of religions, differences of languages, of uh, culture, of ethnicities. Uh, this is uh, God created us different, and God wanted us to be different. And we are going to be different until the end of time. So the only way to uh, deal with these differences is to accept them, respect them, and to live with them. You have talked in the past about the lack of what you called equal citizenship for Christians in many Middle Eastern countries and what you called the misunderstanding of the spirit of Islamic teachings that lead to negative intellectual and political content and that the end result of this is that you know so many 
Christians in some Middle East countries are emigrating. Do you still feel that solving these issues is key to keeping um, Christians in, as you say, this part of the world where they've been for so many centuries? It's true uh, Christians are uh, migrating some well, big numbers of Christians are migrating, but at the same time, big number of Muslims are migrating for uh, for uh, political, economical, and social reasons also. But the uh, Christian migration is really uh, very significant in the sense that it is very dangerous. It is dangerous for Christians. It is dangerous for Christian-Muslim relations because it indicates uh, that Islam does not accept the other, which is not true. And it is the duty of Muslims to prove that uh, it is not true by respecting equality in citizenship, by having civil state. Because according to Islamic teachings, there is no religious state in Islam. Even there is no clergy in Islam. And uh, this means that clergy has no political role. So the only way is to have civil state and uh, equal citizenship by which Christians and Muslims will enjoy their religious freedom and equal duties in front of one law. And do you find that this is a message that is receptive when you speak to other Muslims in the area, or is it sometimes difficult to get it across? Well, it is, it is a message accepted by the majority of Muslims. Now, there are uh, extremists who refuse this, but it is out of context of Islam, their refusal, because extremism is not part of Islamic teaching, is not part of Islamic doctrine. That's why, because of extremism, it's not only Christians are suffering in the Middle East, we Muslims are suffering too. As you yourself mentioned earlier, you were one of the three Muslim participants at the uh, Synod of Bishops for the Middle East held in the Vatican in 2010. And you have also been on record as saying that dialogue is your bread and butter. So what have you learnt from Christians during your dialoguing with them that you particularly value? Well, um, I, I learned a lot, let me say, but I learned more uh, by living with my fellow citizens, Christians, in Lebanon and in the Middle East. We, we live together. It's not uh, theoretically that we make a dialogue. Dialogue is a way of life in, in my country, in Lebanon. If you just give you a small number that indicates something to you, that more than 30% of students uh, in Catholic school are Muslims. So... Through education, through living together, we can learn from each other. We can live together. And we have uh, many organizations, uh, NGOs and uh, religious organizations, that build bridges between our two communities. In Lebanon, and I'm not exaggerating at all, it is really living together is safe and uh, is a model and is an example to, to be followed. I was speaking to Mohamed Samak, Lebanese Muslim scholar and expert on interreligious dialogue. I'm Veronica Skersbrick and I'm about to shine the spotlight on Pope Benedict XVI's apostolic visit to Lebanon, where he has called for peace in the region. 
symbolically planted a sapling Lebanese cedar, national symbol of this country, and has been received warmly by the crowds lining the streets, some of whom, in a welcoming gesture, even strewed rose petals and threw rice on the Popemobile as a sign of celebration. Well, thanks so much for joining me. The Holy Father's pastoral visit to Lebanon began on Friday, 14th of September. On the afternoon of his first day in Beirut, in the course of a ceremony in the stunning hilltop Greek Melkite Basilica of St. Paul in Harissa, he signed a document which goes by the title of Post-Synodal Apostolic Exhortation by the Latin title of Ecclesia in Medio Oriente. As the title indicates, it's intended for the entire Middle Eastern region. No surprise, as it represents the result of the Special Assembly for the Middle East of the Synod of Bishops. For more details on this document, in which he calls for religious freedom in the Middle East, be sure to check our website at radiovaticana.org, where you can find the full text as well as a summary of this document. But let's begin the broadcast with the latest news from the Maronite Patriarch of Berke. That's to say the evening meeting with future generations, the young people, who once again were not just from Lebanon, but had come to meet with the Pope from the entire Middle Eastern region. Tracy McClure is on the ground there and filed this report. It was a party atmosphere that greeted Pope Benedict with song and a rainbow of colors in choreographed dance. With a gigantic rosary made of blue and yellow balloons floating across the sky under the sign of Our Lady, the square outside the Maronite Patriarchal Residence was full to brimming with young people from across Lebanon. so full that the Lebanese themselves were surprised. Many were waiting to see what the security situation would be like before deciding to come. Some didn't care about that at all, crossing over the border from war-torn Syria. One young girl saying she hadn't fled the country but come here on purpose to bring the Holy Father's prayers for peace back to her suffering home. And they came too from the Holy Land, Syria, Iraq, Kurdistan, Jordan, Europe, the Americas and Australia, from across every continent to celebrate the peace that Pope Benedict wants to share in a suffering world. And they weren't just Christians either. At least 1,000 Muslims came, many singing in mixed faith choirs. And the flags were everywhere. One young woman remarked this papal visit is the first time she'd seen the Lebanese, noted for their clannish alliances, all united under the national Lebanese flag, one flag flying alongside the flag of a foreign state, the Holy See. That's never happened before, she said. People usually bring out a myriad of local political flags instead. Well, in the run-up to the Holy Father's arrival, young people shouted out the refrain, Jesus is my joy, and continued to repeat it on and on, even if wars continue against you, even if you suffer, and even if your enemy continues to torture you, 
Jesus is my joy. All here enjoy, in fact, to hear Pope Benedict's Salami o Ticum, my peace I give you. Salami o Ticum, nudile Christ. Now Tracy has given us a little bit of background on this meeting, why not find out more about the speech he delivered on this occasion, the third of this visit. For this, we join Sean Patrick Lovett. Whenever the Pope meets with young people anywhere in the world, there are two words that recur constantly in his discourses, because they're the two words we associate most with youth, hope and the future. Speaking in Lebanon, these words echoed with special significance and strength, spoken as they were in the context of the violence and upheaval that's currently shaking the Middle East and the world, and even more so because they were addressed to Christians and Muslims alike. In fact, everything the Pope said to the young people, who represented their peers throughout the region, stood in stark contrast to the images and news reports simultaneously flashing across our screens. Not only did he invite them to be peacemakers, he urged them to resist everything opposed to life, abortion, violence, contempt, injustice and war. Not only did he encourage them to seek beauty and strive for goodness, he praised their enthusiasm and creativity and reminded them that Islam and Christianity can live side by side without hatred, with respect for the beliefs of each person so as to build together a free and humane society. At the same time, Benedict XVI told the young people he is aware of their frustrations and difficulties and the serious challenges they face because of the lack of security and the unemployment in this part of the world. Still, he reminded them, it's here that Jesus was born and that Christianity grew. Not even unemployment and uncertainty should lead you to taste the bitter sweetness of emigration, he said. You are meant to be protagonists of your country's future. Speaking to the young people, it was as though the Pope was addressing the whole of the Middle East at this particularly dramatic time. Be completely open to others, even if they belong to a different cultural, religious or national group, he said. Respect them, be good to them. This is the true revolution of love. But the paragraph likely to get most visibility across the world is the penultimate one, in which the Pope addresses young people present from Syria. He speaks of how much he admires their courage and adds, Tell your families and friends back home that the Pope has not forgotten you, that he is saddened by your sufferings and grief. Then Benedict XVI, in an unequivocal appeal to the entire world, concludes, It is time for Muslims and Christians to come together so as to put an end to violence and war. I'm Sean Patrick Lovett. And having listened to Sean Patrick Lovett there, telling us all about Pope Benedict XVI's third speech of the visit, the one to young people, we now join Tracy McClure once again as she reports on the Pope's courtesy visit to the President of Lebanon, Michel Sleiman, on the morning of Saturday 15th of September at the Babda Presidential Palace where representatives of the parliamentary, governmental, institutional and political authorities of this Middle Eastern region had also gathered. This is a country in festival. Tens of thousands of flag-waving Lebanese lined the streets north of Beirut to see the Pope driving by in the Pope-mobile. And on the final stretch up to the presidential palace, an equestrian parade, traditional Lebanese dancers and maidens throwing rice to celebrate the Pope's arrival. 
In the gardens of the presidential palace with Lebanon's Christian president Michel Slimane, Pope Benedict planted a sapling Lebanese cedar, the national symbol of this country, and a symbol we'll see as a backdrop to Sunday's big outdoor mass on the Beirut waterfront. The president called Friday's meeting historically important, coming at a decisive moment for the region, describing Lebanon as a land where coexistence is not imposed on the population but is part of the Lebanese identity. The president offered it as a prototype for others to emulate. In his discourse, Pope Benedict drew on the image of the cedar as embodying the hopes of the Lebanese people and all the peoples of the Middle East, whose region, he said, seems to endure interminable birth pangs. And like the cedar, this region requires care to grow to fullness. He called mankind one great family that we're all responsible for. Peace, society, human dignity, the family, dialogue and solidarity, he affirmed, form the core of coexistence and peace. And these turbulent lands can become an example to the world that peace and reconciliation are possible. The first school of peace, the Pope said, is found in the family. And if we fail to defend life, how can we not reject war, terrorism and assaults on innocent life? The destruction of a single human life, the Pope said, is a loss for humanity as a whole. Some ideologies undermine the foundations of society, the Pope charged, by directly or indirectly questioning the inalienable value of each person and the family. We need to be conscious of these attacks on our efforts to build harmonious coexistence, the Pope said, and challenge them by acting in solidarity with others. That means peace needs to be taught at every level from the home to schools, churches and mosques and the places of power. Peace, therefore, must be in our thoughts, words and acts. Calling people to a conversion of hearts and the rediscovery of the profound meaning of justice and common good, the Pope said evil, the devil, works through human freedom and distorts love of neighbor, yielding to falsehood, envy, hatred, and death. Rejecting revenge, acknowledging one's faults, accepting apologies and forgiveness may be quite demanding, the Pope acknowledged, but only forgiveness can lay lasting foundations for reconciliation and universal peace. Car seul le pardon donné et reçu pose les fondements durables de la réconciliation. Describing armed conflict and war in some places as full of futility and horror, the Pope noted that other countries also suffer from assaults on the integrity and lives of people, such as unemployment, poverty, corruption, addiction, exploitation, trafficking and terrorism, which not only cause unacceptable suffering, but also drain human potential. Society must also beware of the risk of being enslaved by an economic and financial mindset, he said, which subordinate being to having.
And in Lebanon, home to 18 different faith communities, the Pope said Christianity and Islam have lived side by side for centuries. It is not uncommon, he said, to find the two religions within the same family. If this is possible, the Pope asked, why should it not be possible at the level of the whole of society? Noting the centuries-old mix of cultures in the Middle East, the Pope lamented the fact that it was also sadly true that they have fought one another. A pluralistic society can only exist on the basis of mutual respect, he said, the desire to know the other and continuous dialogue. And for such dialogue to take place, people must be conscious of the values of all great cultures share because they are rooted in the human person. Calling religious freedom the basic right on which many other rights depend, the Holy Father said the freedom to profess and practice one's religion without danger to life and liberty must be possible to everyone. In concluding, the Holy Father said all these reflections can and must be lived out. In this context, Lebanon, he stressed, is called now more than ever to be an example. And he called here on politicians, diplomats, religious leaders, and society to testify with courage that God wants peace and is entrusting it to all of us. Politic, diplomat, religion. Hommes et femmes du monde et de la culture, je vous invite donc à témoigner avec courage, à temps et à contre-temps, autour de vous, que Dieu veut la paix, que Dieu nous confie la paix. Salam et comme nous dit le Christ. Que Dieu vous bénisse. Merci. In Lebanon with Pope Benedict, I'm Tracy McClure. On this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we heard another talk from Christ the King's Catholic Worldview series. We heard Sacred Heart Major Seminary's Paco Gavrilides. His title was, You Shall Renew the Face of the Earth. You'll hear more from this series in the near future. Vatican Radio also contributed reports on our Holy Father's recent trip to Lebanon. We thank them for their contribution to our program. Our talks for Putting on the Mind of Christ are drawn from an extensive archive we recorded over the last dozen or so years. The talks are recorded at large and small conferences, parish missions, and diocesan and parish teaching sessions. They have been edited for enhanced listening clarity and comprehension. License has been granted by the speakers for this use. A CD set of this program is available. Order program number 446. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506, 734-930-4506, or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild and this station. This radio station is listener-supported. If you like what is offered here, we ask you to support it with your treasure. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Tune in next time for a talk about Christian concerns from the Catholic perspective. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.